Welcome to the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series with Dr. Dave Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is the author of the book Cybersecurity Readiness, a holistic and high-performance approach, a SAGE publication. He has been studying cybersecurity for over a decade, authored and edited scholarly papers, delivered talks, conducted webinars and workshops, consulted with companies, and served on a cybersecurity SWAT team with chief information security officers. Dr. Chatterjee is Associate Professor of Management Information Systems at the Terry College of Business, the University of Georgia. As a Duke University visiting scholar, Dr. Chatterjee has taught in the Master of Engineering and Cybersecurity program at the Pratt School of Engineering. Hello, everyone. Happy New Year. I'm delighted to welcome you to this episode of the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series. Our discussion today will focus on finding a balance between our natural need to trust and the caution that needs to be there to deal with all forms of online cyber attacks. In fact, I experienced a phishing attack this morning, and I'll get into that later on. I'm delighted to welcome Beatrice Cadet from Amsterdam, Netherlands. Beatrice is a scientist integrator at Netherlands Organization for Applied Scientific Research. With a background in intelligence and psychology, Beatrice has specialized in cybersecurity by taking an integrative approach, working on bridging the gap between human and the technical aspects. So Beatrice, before we get into the details of managing trust, let's talk about you a little bit. Share with the listeners some highlights of your professional journey. Yes. So again, thank you so much for having me. And I'm excited about the discussion we're about to have. So about me, as you just said, I started with a master's in intelligence and security management from Sciences Po, a university in, in France. That gave me quite a multidisciplinary background within the social sciences area. From there, I knew I was interested in tech, so I tried to target my internships more into the online safety and security, which led me to work for a startup in Dublin that is called Zico that works on online safety for children. And then I thought I needed to gain some technical knowledge to properly work in cybersecurity, which led me to the Netherlands, where I still am today. And I worked for a company called Red Sox Security, Cyber Threat Intelligence. So I really dove into the technical world and worked with a technical team. My goal being to to get some knowledge and some skills, but eventually I found a really interesting position to be a social scientist or more human approach person within the technical world and the technical people. And from there, I moved to my current position where indeed I, that what we do is quite multidisciplinary. I work on online safety and, and security information manipulation. So that's the core of the content that we are working on, but then the type of work we do could be scientific article as much as trainings or workshops for police or the Ministry of Defense, for example. I'm focusing now on the human factors. So that got me to start a bachelor in psychology, just to add that to the background in security and mostly cybersecurity. And I got hooked and I became a clinical psychologist. Wonderful. In fact, I don't believe I've had a clinical psychologist on my show yet. So you are the first one. Nice. <laughs> I'm looking forward to learning 
a lot from your insights and expertise. So from your lens, from a psychologist's lens, what does the social engineering trends look like? What can we expect in the future? Yes. So one thing I always say is that, of course, criminals innovate also a lot in social engineering. So we see new tricks and new ways to to catch people, especially with new technologies. And I think that's something to really look look up look to look at sorry because for example deep fakes and it's something that we need to look for in the future but that is also already here i think deep fakes will be more and more used and we've seen it this year already i mean 2022 we've seen it so more and more deep fakes they use technology more and more to manipulate people and i always say that social engineering can be approached from the two ways right so it's using psychology or i mean human manipulation to conduct a technical cyber attacks, but it could also be using technologies and technical tricks to actually manipulate people. So that's something I like to highlight when I talk about social engineering. So as I said, yeah, innovations or new tricks. But one thing that I always see is that old tricks also always are always here. And when I was working on cyber threat intelligence, I would work on some phishing labs and try to analyze some phishing campaigns. And I would find some campaigns that beside having different types of indicators of compromise, different different IP addresses, for example, the visual aspect of the campaign would be exactly the same. So, for example, Elon Musk is giving away 20 bitcoins. And so that shows that social engineering in the end is nothing new and that we're still falling for the same old trick. And it's not proper to cybersecurity. Social engineering has existed since forever. So with that in mind, I think, yeah, what we can see in the trends and in the landscape for the upcoming year and years is really looking at the old trick, look, still trying to bring more wellness because we're still falling for the same sort of campaigns. And additionally, technology is being more and more used to manipulate people even more effectively. I can't agree with you more. When you say we are still falling for the same tricks, we as humans... We are naturally inclined to trust. We are very vulnerable or susceptible or gullible. We end up believing what we see. Early in the morning, I saw an email supposedly from a major credit card company, and I have a card with them, stating that a certain amount could not be paid. So I need to log in and make the payment. It looked so genuine. They had the graphics right, they had the logos right, and it was very well crafted. It wasn't the the typical phishing emails with grammatical errors and stuff like that. I was almost thinking of clicking on that link, but then I said, no, I won't. I'm just going to call them. And yes, I did expand the subject line to check on the address. I couldn't tell if it was a genuine address or a fake address. Instead of clicking on anything or replying, I just called them this morning. I said, I received this email and she went into my account, checked and said, sir, very smart of you. You picked up on something that you should not be clicking on. The reason I share this example is that I have now become so paranoid. Anytime I see an email, I scan it thoroughly I refuse to click on any attachments unless I know for sure who the sender is. And when in doubt, 
verify, right? Just call and ask. So it was kind of interesting that I had that experience this morning and we are now discussing about whether to trust or not to trust. Yeah, good timing. Yeah, I know. Good timing. Beatrice, during our planning discussion, you mentioned a few things that I want to pick up on. You talked about the need for socio-technical solutions to counter social engineering. And there are a lot of solutions out there. It might be very valuable for you to highlight for the benefit of the listeners. What are some of these solutions? Yes. So when I mentioned the need for social technical solutions, I think, for example, on the technical side to the filtering solutions, for example, for the email, if we're talking about phishing emails, yes, I think this is a good first step. We need that in place. We need that to be efficient. When I think of social solutions, it all comes with awareness. It all comes with training. And I, and the reason why I say this social technical solutions, because there is so much, so many campaigns, so much social engineering going on that we cannot expect everyone to always be at their best, ready to check everything. And I would like to rebound on the example you just mentioned, your example from this morning. You're in the field. So you're a little bit more aware, maybe, and you may be a little bit more used to it. So that gives you a bit more awareness, maybe, than most people. But also, you took the time, and in, that was time-consuming, no? To have to, to check all the different elements, to doubt, and then still to call them. So not everyone always has that time or decides to always take that time. So that's why even though people would be very well trained into spotting every single phishing email whatsoever, I think it would still there would still be some vulnerabilities at some point. The same way that a filter on an email also has some vulnerabilities and might not filter all the phishing emails or filter too many of them. So yeah, that's a few examples I can think of now when I'm talking about social technical solutions. Yeah, I mean, I don't enjoy calling credit card companies in the morning to follow up <laughs> follow up on things because it takes up a lot of my time. Yeah. And that's not the way I want to start my day. No. <laughs> but we are in this environment where we have to be vigilant. We have to be patient. It brings to mind an episode I did recently on multi-factor authentication and the fatigue that's associated with it. The subject matter expert told me that many developers don't want to go through that authentication process, especially when they are dealing with 15, 20 different applications, because it is bothersome. It is time consuming. They become impatient. Unfortunately, we are in an environment where we have to be mindful. We have to be careful. We have to prioritize. Finances are something that I've I carefully monitor, especially my credit card transactions. If I note anything that could be problematic, I immediately get into an investigative mood and I I probe further. I give it a priority, Mm -hmm. though it's not something that I would like to give priority, but I am left with no choice. So that's kind of the way I do things. And I'm sure many others, your thoughts? Yes. And I think it's great. Ideally, we should always be very mindful of every single email, every single text, even every single phone call or interaction with people. The thing is, as you said earlier in this talk, indeed, biologically, human beings are inclined to to trust. 
Yeah. And then, of course, it depends on the personality. Not everyone will have the same extent, that same inclination to trust. And it also depends on your experiences. And I would say one of the problems with cybersecurity in general is that most people don't feel the burn when they burn themselves. You know how you learn that fire burns? Well, you burn your finger. It's painful and you tend not to do it again because you learn from the pain. <laughs> most people that got cut with cyber with a cybersecurity issue, so a phishing email or whatsoever, they might not know that they have that their data is out on the dark web, or they might know that there has been a data leak, for example, but they don't really know what it represents. So I think it's also very difficult for people who are not very knowledgeable or used to cybersecurity to choose to put that as a priority the same way that you do. Yep. So yeah, I think that is very important factor to, to consider. And as you said, there are so many emails as well. And that to go back on that need for social technical solution, that's also why I think it's important because there's so many simulations coming all the time from different directions that it's very difficult to keep everything as a priority and to be untrusty of everything you come across every day. Exactly. And we multi-process so much these days, right? Yeah. And we are using different devices. Yes. And so, and it's like second nature to us. We're just doing stuff. So to have that natural filter that a little bit of security paranoia, which would force us to stop, think, take a necessary action before we move on to the next thing. For that to become muscle memory, for lack of a better word, that comes through training. You're exactly right. That also comes through, again, I'm not a psychologist, but I'm going to put myself out there and hypothesize or suggest that we have to start really believing yes. that this is a problem. And like you use the excellent, excellent analogy or metaphor of the burn, that do we really need to get burned to appreciate what should be done proactively? We have to kind of learn to be a little more cautious and can't just throw caution to the winds, as they say. I was speaking with a subject matter expert in the last episode that was published, and she's a expert in cybersecurity technologies. And I asked her a question. I said, do you think we'll ever get to that stage where humans don't have to worry about making mistakes because we have great technologies that will cover for us? And she answered in the affirmative. She said, yes, I am optimistic that there will come a time sooner than later where we don't have to be this vigilant. And I hope her words come true. Yeah, But until then, we just have to be careful, right? Yeah, exactly. And also be very pragmatic about it. It it most likely will happen. And I think maybe coming to a state where we don't have to be that worried about it will be that first, because we're more trained, so we have more feeling of control on what we can do about it. That's very important. But also a point where we'll have better technology maybe to to counter this complementary but also that we'll have more resilience processes so that you will know that, okay, even if you make mistakes, there are ways to recover or there are ways to, and that's all the developments maybe with insurances or like processes where you can, okay, make mistakes, but you're not alone in there because as of now, there are very little processes in place. And even with the police, they're trying to have more people report cybercrime, but it's still very low. So I think 
that as a compliment could also help us get to a stage where we're a little bit more, yeah, yep. peaceful about it. <laughs> yep. But yep. I wanted to rebound as well on something you said with training and the importance of mindset. There is one concept. It's a sort of pyramid of different concepts you need to get to effective training. Uh, and the bottom line of the pyramid is actually awareness and mindset. And if you don't have that, you can do every single training you want. It won't have the effect that you're expecting. You really need to have people understand why they're training on this, why they have to work on this specific skills or a specific concept or, or issue. And if you don't have that, you won't get the effects you want. So that's really important to understand why we need actually to, to get better at this. Yep. That connects with what I often say is we have to get the user buy-in. Unless the buy-in is there, unless the user recognizes the importance of doing certain things or following certain guidelines, following certain best practices, they may not be willing to do so. And as much as we might preach that, let's be proactive, let's not be reactive. But unfortunately, the results, the the statistics suggest that we are reactive Mm -hmm. and we learn best after a major catastrophe. Yes. If we can use the pandemic as an example, despite all these great organizations out there, terrific scientists out there, we still couldn't, we were not proactive about it. We made a great recovery. Thanks to the scientists, we have the vaccines and all credit to them. Thanks to all the healthcare workers who've done human service. But having said that, I'm not so sure that if we have another round of a pandemic, are we better prepared for it now that we have experienced one? I'm not so sure. I'm still very pessimistic about it because we are naturally not, again, this is a hunch. I'm not a psychologist. Maybe you can shed some light. We are naturally not inclined to be proactive. Yes. And I would fear that maybe if there would be another pandemic, we would try to apply the lessons from the one we just, we've just been through, just still a bit happening, right? I would hope that we would learn to be proactive by taking the lessons learned, but also looking towards the future as well and mixing that up together. Yes. And it's similar to what could be happening sometimes in cybersecurity that we just think, oh yeah, there is that threat. So we apply this, but the threats are moving and it's always a cat and mouse game. So how, how do we become as defenders, as innovative as the kernels, right? How do we try to make the gap between the two sides a little bit smaller? That's also very important. Exactly. And I want to emphasize what you just said. It is important to learn from the past, but it is also important to recognize that the future might present challenges that have to be dealt with, and we may not be prepared for it from our past experiences. So therefore, it requires a mix of Yes, informed insights from the past, plus the innovations that's going on, because we have to think proactively of what are the future types of attacks that might be launched and how can we protect ourselves. When I say how can we, I'm talking about individuals, groups, organizations, nations at any level. I think this approach, a a deliberate, a proactive approach is, is valuable, irrespective. So... Awesome. Once again, going back to my planning document here, I I took notes when we were talking and you made a very poignant statement. 
you said overall i want to debunk the emotional aspects of social engineering we need to be more pragmatic about it we all fall for it at some point but how to best avoid it and recover expand a little bit about emotional aspects of social engineering yes so i would say emotional maybe also a little bit seeing it as a buzzword we hear so often human are the weakest link and it's because of the people and stuff and yes it it is true because in the end even though cybercrime cybersecurity is all about tech behind the computers behind the phones you you have humans on both sides of it so completely agree with this uh, but being so alarming about so, uh, about social engineering as much as it is good and important and necessary it has to have its limits because first there's a point that we haven't mentioned yet but there's a, a psychological concept that is called learned helplessness is that people feel so overwhelmed and they feel like no matter what they do it won't help anything so and many people have that and it has been shown in research in cybersecurity that the reason why sometimes things don't work or people still fall, fall for phishing and stuff is because they know that no matter what they do or they think that no matter what they do they will get scammed anyway and it's so overwhelming that they prefer to just drop it and be like yeah i have nothing to hide or whatever happens happens so that's why i think by being a bit less emotional about social engineering being a threat but being just pragmatic about it like it is there it has always been there it will still be there I think that could be actually a very good step towards being more protected against it. So that's the core of the point I would like to make. Yes. Well made. When you said learned helplessness, it immediately brought to mind an experience that I, ha- I had a couple of years ago when I was gathering data for my book, and I spoke to a senior leader of a major healthcare company, and he made a very interesting statement. He said, "We are such a large organization." we have so many systems interfacing with other external systems we connect with all kinds of iot devices it's very overwhelming to stay on top of everything and know where our vulnerabilities are where we are we are strong so you almost feel helpless and you are kind of hoping to use his words that we get attacked so we get to know where our weaknesses are and of course that is not the approach or mindset that i recommend or anybody for that matter would recommend but that speaks to what you just said about learned helplessness whether it's a leader of a major organization or whether individuals i have gone through some cybersecurity certification some sort of cybersecurity training they can get complicated there's so much to learn so much to know and so for a regular person who just wants to do their thing and be happy and not get too caught up with the stuff they're like oh i don't want to know the details if something were to happen i'll deal with it when it happens so that's precisely i think what ends up happening with humans because human mind can only absorb or deal with so much complexity right exactly. we have we have our cognitive limitations and when it goes beyond that we are like okay never mind let's just hope for the best i'm not going to tr- try anymore so i think yeah, that point is extremely well made we have our cognitive limitations yet we still make thousands and thousands of decisions every day without even noticing it and so that's the whole thing also with going back to trust trusting not trusting so many decisions are automated and 
we cannot control everything. And also criminals know that they're also human beings and they know how to trick us. So that overwhelming feeling, they know how to abuse it. And for example, you got your email, you saw it in the morning and you see something about your card in the morning when you just woke up maybe. So then it's even harder to be rational and they know exactly how, how to do this. So yes, bringing a bit more peace to it, being like, okay, this is it. You need to be aware of this. We need to train on this. We need to get better at this, but also without, yeah, dramatizing it. I think it's very important to actually make concrete progress. Fantastic. So let's talk a little bit about the zero trust approach. And if I understand this approach properly, essentially the assumption is being made that let's try to be as secure as possible every step of the way use a combination of physical, technical, and administrative controls, have micro have micro-segmented networks. So when a user wants to move from one network to another, they have to again authenticate. So have checks and balances every step of the way. I was reading somewhere they used an example of going to a rock concert and you get checked in once, but then you again get checked in and again get checked in before you get to your seat. So having these multiple layers of defense, for lack of a better word, or another very popular terminology out there is defense in depth. Those are being advocated big time. They are being considered best practices. From a psychologist standpoint, what is your perception on this zero trust framework or zero trust approach to cybersecurity governance? Yeah. So as a psychologist in cybersecurity, my first thought is thinking, yes, indeed, that, that makes sense. And layering security is, yeah, it's just, it just makes sense. Right. But then as a psychologist, first, what comes to my mind is we need to pay attention that all of those measures and all of those technical aspects, physical points of security, are adapted to how human human behave, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, because often we try to create solutions. So I'm thinking concrete technical solutions that are actually not adapted to how users behave. And that can be the key to failure if we don't think about it. So I think indeed great great point to have those different policies in place, to have those different infrastructures, security infrastructures in place, but we need to make sure that they are not too heavy for the user. And of course, it's easy for me to say this, right? It's ideally, we always want this, but it's important to develop it as well, always with the user in mind and thinking, okay, how can we, instead of thinking, let's develop the best technical solution and then fit it into the user process, we need to think ahead and think, okay, we need to have a sort of technical solutions in place. How do we make sure that the user will adopt it? And of course, the user might have to adapt to adopt. But how can we make sure we, we do that in the easiest way possible? And then when it comes to thinking zero trust, I think as much as it's great for policies and technical solutions, we need to, again, as we said earlier, remind ourselves that having a human being always suspect something won't happen. It's just not possible all day, every day. Exactly. And I hope uh, listeners, if if they uh, have anything to do with training in their organizations or if they have the influence, I hope that whoever is involved in developing a training program include the psychologists in the team because you need technical specialists, no doubt. 
You need strategists, no doubt. But you also need the psychologists who understand human behavior. Because after all, these solutions, many of the solutions, if not all, many of the solutions, which involve human interaction or which are going to be used by humans, unless you understand human psyche, human mindset, the solutions are not going to be very effective. I'd like to briefly mention a research that was carried out a couple of years ago where they trained a group of people to see whether post-training, the percentage who fell for phishing attacks would drastically decline. Unfortunately, the research found the variation wasn't significant. In other words, the training didn't prove to be, the phishing-related training didn't prove to be effective. And the researchers justified the explanation or tried to explain the findings by saying that there are so many human factors, such as innate curiosity, for lack of a better, better word, greediness. If we see an email which is promising a certain sum of money, if we click a link and play a game or throw a dice, whatever, we are inclined to do so because we want to believe that, yes, there is some uh, something to be gained from this action. It may not be fake. We almost force ourselves to believe it because we have the need for money, let's say. Or And like we said earlier, we are many of us are often naturally inclined to trust. So it is so important that the human psychology is taken into consideration by involving subject matter experts such as yourself when training programs are developed. Would you like to add to that? Yes, there were two points I wrote down for myself. Let's start with the role of the psychologist in such a team. I think Indian knowing how people function, knowing how to investigate how specific groups of people function as well, or specific individuals even. And that's something that I often hear. So I speak with a lot of technical people, of course, and I give a guest lecture every year at The Hague University of Applied Science, and it's a technical crowd. And what I recognize often is that technical people tend to think as one zero. (laughs) And I don't want to generalize because that's exactly the point I'm about to make. But I hear that very often and I get some people asking me, but how do you know this for people or how do you approach this for people? And there's no exact rule. And that's one thing you learn when you study psychology is that, okay, you will learn specific, especially in my case, clinical psychology, you will learn specific syndromes or how to recognize things, but the experience will never be the same for two individuals. So you really need to learn how specific people function and apply that knowledge to the knowledge, the general knowledge we have on human beings, and then bring that to the group of developers or or whoever you're working with. And so there's that role that a psychologist can have in a team, but then there's also the role of often translating between different disciplines. And you mentioned strategies, technical people that you may have in a team. And that's a position I've often been myself of actually understanding how the different group of people working on a project think and communicate and how to, because multidisciplinary work is still very complicated and it's very valuable and it's what we need to go towards, but it's very complicated. So having a psychologist sometimes can help binding those different disciplines together. So yeah, that was the first point that I had on what you just said. (laughs) And what was the other one? You said you made two points. Yeah, the other one was you mentioned some human factors and that's why we need also psychologists involved in, in trainings and stuff. 
But I think what needs to be incorporated also in trainings is some more, yeah, day-to-day human factors. So not just general knowledge on cognitive psychology. So yeah, this is how the brain works. This is, this is how people make decisions and stuff. This is very important, of course. But one thing that we tend to forget is that one person won't make the same kind of decisions every single day. The context is so important to how you will make a decision. And even the most rational person may at some point make a very emotional decision. And so that's also what you were talking about. We're talking about seeing that email that will promise you some money. And then in a moment of weakness, you might decide that, oh, you want to believe in this. And what you say is really true because sometimes we decide to trust for the wrong reasons. And so, well, for the wrong reasons or because of some sort of contextual influence. And my colleagues and I, two years ago, wrote a paper on disinformation during COVID-19. And one of the statements that we made in the discussion is that maybe the context of the lockdown and, and the pandemic happening influenced why so many people started to believe in disinformation and people that might not believe in it before the pandemic. But in this specific context, with that much uncertainty, with mental disorders being on the rise, so I'm thinking anxiety and depression, those like, anxiety and depression, they affect your emotional system, right? Absolutely. Um, and we saw that the narratives that were played in disinformation played on the emotions that are affected by depression and anxiety. So that being hopelessness, having difficulties dealing with uncertainty, being very anxious, being very angry. And so, yeah, those people in normal times, they might have not fallen for this, But now they were triggered on specific aspects of the human factors in a specific context. And that's why it worked. So that's why I think beyond the being well aware about social engineering campaigns and cybercrime in general, it's also very important to be self-aware and to know that, to know your own limits, actually, to know that sometimes you might be overstressed and overwhelmed and you're not going to be able to make the same type of decision as if you're perfectly healthy and mentally well-balanced. And nobody will be mentally well-balanced every single day. So I think that's a a very important point to consider for everyone because we're all dealing with emails, with technologies and with cybercrime, but also for people making the trainings or searching for the right solutions. Very true. Very true. Let me try to tease out Some inferences from this discussion from the standpoint of cybersecurity governance. First, humans are very complex beings. Their behavior will not be consistent, will change with context, with situations, with the environment. And that has to be factored in, whether you are conducting a training program, whether you're developing a technical solution. But what does that mean? That means You recognize that even the best of solutions, if it has a human involvement, can fail at a certain point in time on a certain day because that particular person wasn't on their best game. Something had happened. Something had taken over. They had, they were vulnerable. They felt weak for for a variety of different reasons. So therefore, the more I think about it, it makes sense to have a zero trust approach, a zero trust framework, because that's assuming that whether you trust or you don't trust, 
And if those things keep changing for a variety of reasons, we can't control that, but at least let's build or establish the checks and balances. To use your words, let's take, be pragmatic about it and take a very practical approach, install the necessary barriers through different types of controls. So we can still protect the organization, protect assets and other resources from attacks that might happen because of human vulnerabilities. So that's kind of my long drawn circuitous explanation or inferences of what we've been talking about. Would you like to add to that? Yeah, exactly. We need to accept that it's not black or white. We're in an area that is rather gray. And indeed, some one person that can be very good at a phishing test might still get caught at some point, depending on the context, depending on how well the criminal also built the campaign, because maybe it's targeted and they've done a great job at intelligence and they know how to trick that person. Yeah, so we need to accept that and having, yeah, indeed different layers of security, technical and human, allowed to balance when one of the two fails. And it, it will at some point. And also, yeah, having ways to recover properly. That's very important. All right. Well, as much as I would love to continue this discussion, we are coming to the end of our time allotted here. So I'd like to give you the opportunity to summarize or say anything that you'd like the listeners to take away from this discussion. Yes, thank you. So I think for the general audience, it's very important to become more aware of social engineering as a threat because we are all facing it and consequences can be very damaging. It's important to understand that and it's important for everyone to understand that they can actually have some sort of control on it as little as checking your emails more properly or knowing that checking the email address, for example, can save you from a phishing link or just not clicking without checking, like those different kind of things. And it's important for, I think, authorities in general to understand that, yes, some people that work in the corporate environment will get some trainings, more or less effective still at this stage, but they will and they have more awareness as well on that. But the whole population needs to get more awareness and training in general on social engineering. And then if we're thinking about decision makers and companies, yeah, understand that your employees are human beings. Technical people understand that human beings are not just, yeah, one or zero, that they will fail at times, that they're more complex and it's really difficult to generalize. The only generalization we can make is that there is no generalization that can be made. <laughs> but then to end that summary, again, social engineering has always existed. We need to be very pragmatic about it. We're still falling for the old tricks. There is some innovation and we need to keep an eye on the developments, but there is something we can do about it. We have that power. And to finish on a positive note, I would say that I've also experienced in my surroundings, whether professional or personal, way more awareness and good practices coming from different types of people. So I think we're on the right track. We just need to keep on working on it and accepting that it's a gray area and having a multidisciplinary approach against that. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Beatrice, for your time and your thoughts. I look forward to many more such conversations. Same. Thank you for having me. A special thanks to Beatrice Cadet for her time and insights. If you like what you heard, 
please leave the podcast a rating and share it with your network. Also, subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this podcast is for general guidance only. The discussants assume no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained in this podcast is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantee of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. The opinions and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the discussants and not of any organization.